welcome back to Ending Explained, a film review podcast that takes a deep dive into those tricky and intriguing open endings. I'm your host, Kenna Park, and today we're talking about the new 2022 movie, Babylon. This is following up from last episode about La La Land because both are directed by Damien Chazelle. This movie, if you listen to my top 20 of 2022 episode, was included in my top 20. Some movie background about this one. The genre is an epic period comedy drama. So lots of stuff shoved in here. It was written and directed by Damien Chazelle. And it stars a pretty large cast, but I'd say the main people are Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, and Diego Calva. And then there's also Gene Smart, Joe Adepo, and Lee Jun Lee. Now, the Oscar nominations as of this recording have not been released yet, but the Oscar shortlist has been released. And this movie has made it on that Oscar shortlist for makeup and hairstyling, music, original score, and sound. Rotten Tomatoes is a pretty disappointing score. It's got 55% for critics and 49% for uh, audience score. So that's rotten on both ends. And the critics' consensus is Babylon's overwhelming muchness is exhausting, but much like the industry it honors, its well-acted, well-crafted glitz and glamour can often be an effective distraction. People. This movie is three hours and nine minutes long. I saw this movie, and then the next day I saw the second Avatar, which is also over three hours long. I feel really bad for whoever has to schedule movie theaters, because I can imagine that when you have more than one three-hour-plus-long movie, that's gotta that's gotta get in the way of being able to schedule movie theaters, and there's probably less show times if they're able to give. And it, it's not like they make more money if on the ticket if the movie lasts longer. So whew, hope they're not losing too much money because of all these ridiculously, needlessly long movies. Because let's be real, this movie did not need to be over three hours, and Avatar also did not need to be over three hours. I do want to start adding in, in addition to the Rotten Tomatoes score to each movie, the Letterbox score. So Letterbox actually gave this movie a 3.8 stars out of 5, which roughly translates to about 76%, which is well above the 55.49 that Rotten Tomatoes gave it. And I was actually going to skip this one with the combination of the crazy long runtime and the Rotten Tomatoes scores, but then Letterboxd changed my mind, and honestly, I'm glad that I ended up going. Let's dive into the plot summary. There are three main characters in this story, Manny Torres, played by Diego Calva, Nellie Leroy, played by Margot Robbie, and Jack Conrad, played by Brad Pitt. In Los Angeles, during the Roaring Twenties, Manuel Manny Torres, a Mexican immigrant and aspiring filmmaker, works odd jobs peripheral to the burgeoning silent film industry. Manny helps transport a loose-boweled elephant to a depraved, indulgent party. Nudity, public sex, cocaine, a little person on a phallic-shaped pogo stick, at Kinescope Studios' executive Don Wallach's mansion. 
There, Manny crosses paths with Nellie Leroy, a brash, ambitious, aspiring starlet from New Jersey, and is quickly smitten with her. As they share their dreams, Manny reveals his wish to be part of something bigger, while Nellie declares herself a star. While the elephant walks through the ballroom, distracting partygoers, Manny helps carry away a young actress who overdosed on drugs during a perverse sexual encounter with another actor. Also attending the party are Chinese-American lesbian cabaret performer Lady Feizhou, who performs a sexually charged number, and African-American jazz trumpet player Sidney Palmer. The flamboyantly dancing Nellie is spotted and swiftly recruited to appear in a film for Wallach's studio, replacing the overdosed actress. During filming, she crudely upstages the film star. Meanwhile, with the party over, Manny meets and befriends Jack Conrad, a benevolent but troubled film star whose wife has just divorced him and offers to drive a drunken Jack home. Out of gratitude, Jack helps Manny secure assistant jobs at Kinescope, such as finding a new camera to film an outdoors scene with Jack before nightfall, allowing Manny to climb the ranks of the studio system. Nellie quickly becomes an it girl, whose exploits are documented by gossip columnist Eleanor St. John, who also writes about other stars, including Jack. As the advent of sound film displaces silence in the late 1920s, Manny is determined to adapt to the technical and logistical changes, eventually securing himself directorial jobs. Nellie struggles to navigate the demands that sound film makes on actors and begins indulging in drug use and reckless gambling, tarnishing her reputation despite Manny's attempts to help her. Nellie, shown to have an institutionalized mother, eggs on her drunken father, who is also her inept business manager, to publicly fight a rattlesnake. However, he passes out, and she fights the snake, which bites her and latches onto her neck. In the ensuing chaos, Jack is hit by a car, and Faye comes to Nellie's aid, decapitating the snake and sucking the venom from her neck. A revived Nellie passionately kisses Lady Faye. Later, while running lines with his new wife, Estelle, Jack is devastated to learn his longtime friend and producer, George, committed suicide over a short-lived affair. By 1932, Jack begins to sense that his popularity has waned, he continues to work in low-budget films for Kinescope, despite public scrutiny. Meanwhile, Sidney has become an esteemed musician within the studio, eventually securing his own musical film, in which he leads an orchestra, but is greatly offended when Manny requests that he use makeup to darken his skin for Southern audiences, as his fellow musicians possess darker skin tones. After completing the film, Sidney cuts ties with Kinescope entirely. Manny subsequently fires Faye, a title writer for the studio, when she garners Nellie press attention for their perceived lesbian affair as Hollywood becomes more puritanical. Eleanor and Manny attempt to revamp Nellie's image and integrate her into Hollywood's high society, but Nellie eventually lashes out against upper-class snobbery at a party, vomiting on the carpet and on a host, furthering her public downfall. When Jack finds a cover story by Eleanor about his declining popularity, he confronts her at her home, where she bluntly explains that his star has faded and that he, like her, will in time be replaced by industry newcomers. Eleanor insists he find comfort in the fact that he is immortalized on celluloid. 
Meanwhile, Nellie finds her life in danger from eccentric gangster James McKay over her massive gambling debts. Manny initially rejects her pleas for help and lashes out at her for ruining his life. However, reminiscing about their past friendship and his feelings for her, he attempts to help her by securing funds from a longtime on-set drug pusher and aspiring actor known as The Count, and visits McKay with him to pay off Nellie's debt, but panics upon learning the money is fake, made by Manny's own prop maker. McKay invites the men to a subterranean gathering space for debauched parties, raving about potential film ideas. When McKay realizes the cash is prop money, he attempts to kill them, but they narrowly escape after Manny kills McKay's henchmen, and they released a chain alligator to slow down the ensuing mob. Manny attempts to convince Nellie to flee with him to Mexico. She initially resists, wishing to accept her fate, but she eventually relents and agrees to accompany him. They decide they will marry in Mexico and start a new life. McKay's associate tracks Manny before they can depart, killing the Count and his roommate, but sparing Manny's life. Meanwhile, Nellie renages on her decision to leave with Manny, perhaps believing herself to be too toxic for him and manically dances away into the night. Simultaneously, Jack encounters Faye at a hotel party, where she tells him of her departure for Europe to work for Pathé. After Faye departs, Jack, despondent over the state of his career, and perhaps over the waning of old Hollywood, calmly goes to his hotel room and shoots himself. Two decades later, in 1952, Manny returns to California with his wife and young daughter, having fled to New York City, where he established a successful camera retail business. He shows his family the entrance to Kenoscope Studios. Manny also visits a nearby cinema alone to see Singin' in the Rain. Reminded of his love for Nelly, he is moved to tears by the film's depiction of the industry's transition from silent films to talkies, as it recreates several scenarios he experienced and witnessed himself. A montage reveals newspaper clippings dealing, detailing how Nellie was found dead in a hotel room at age 34, as well as the eventual death of Eleanor at age 76. A century-spanning series of vignettes from numerous films, ranging from silent pictures to contemporary 21st century cinema, follows. Realizing that his efforts made an impact and that he had successfully achieved much of his dream, Manny smiles. Alright guys, I recorded that intro and summary a couple weeks ago and then I got sick and then my cold has not gone away, hence me skipping a week or two between episodes, so I apologize for that. As you can probably hear, I'm not 100% back, but I feel like, you know, good enough, good enough to uh, do a little shortened analysis section for this episode at least. So let's dive in. There is a lot to try to explain about this ending because it really dissolves into something very abstract. Overall, I've heard this movie described as a depraved retelling of Singing in the Rain and also as like an inverted hellish version of La La Land, which both really make sense to me. Before I jump into themes and metaphors and stuff like that, 
I really feel like the main thing to address here is that sequence at the end of the film. It's definitely experimental, it's abstract, it unravels from the film's narrative structure, it's, it's bold, and it's hard to explain. So I'm just going to cheat a little bit and let Damien Chazelle explain it by quoting him from a, an interview he did with Collider. So about this experimental sequence at the end, he said, It was an idea born in editing, actually, because initially the scene was simpler. Basically, it was purely simply Manny, Diego Calva's character, watching, singing in the rain, and having this mixture of pain, relief, and epiphany watching it, and the refraction on his own life that he's coming to terms with at the moment, or forced to come to terms with maybe for the first time at that moment. On the page, it was that simple. In the film, it wound up feeling like it needed just one more dimension to it, really. The basic idea of it just needed a little more externalizing, a more overt presentation, because of the movie that had preceded it. Because we're at the tail end of three hours of maximalist, in-your-face moviness. It was almost too quiet of an ending, but it wound up feeling like the movie ended with a whimper, and this was a movie that needed to end with a bang. What we wound up doing was the exact same idea, basically, as what was in the script or what we had shot, but instead of communicating the emotion we were trying to, commun to communicate purely through one film, it was, let's use that one film to open up to a whole host of other films and a host of memories, and eventually just boil down to what I'd call the fundamental building blocks, the atoms of cinema, just colors and music or color and sound. It's just that ultimately it all comes down to that, and it all comes down to a light and sound show, that basic idea that is so basic it has lasted a hundred plus years. I mean, obviously, you could argue that it had its ancestors before, if going back way more than a hundred years. I would argue it's going to go on for way more than another hundred years. That there's something primal and eternal about images flickering on a wall, whether it's in cave painting days or in a movie theater, that I think is never going to go away. That bigger idea and our character realizing that's the epiphany for me on some level. Not that I want to reduce it to words, but that on some level, there's something bigger than he can only just faintly grasp, that any one of us can only just faintly grasp, that we are all just cogs in this much bigger wheel that will outlast all of us. End quote, very long quote. I think that... That definitely makes me feel better about that closing sequence because as I was experiencing it, I was like, this feels really weird and maybe it's just too weird to appreciate or maybe weirder people than I would appreciate it, but it, it just felt too wacky for me. <laughs> but I really like the, the idea that he's trying to communicate about the everlasting nature of visual and the audio storytelling because I, I, I got the montage of movies. I thought that was a bit heavy handed and I thought that his selections of what quick clips to pick from different movies were interesting. Like I understood definitely some of the more classics, but then I thought it was really weird to include a scene from Avatar. I mean, yes, it's definitely a technical, innovative movie that did something when it comes to special effects that no movie had done before, but I don't know if we can put it 
at this point in time on the same level as some of the other more classics that were also showed in that sequence to kind of immortalize it as one of the movies to end all movies. And also the fact that the sequel was out in theaters or about to come out in theaters at the exact same time. It definitely felt like a, just a really weird thing to throw in there. <laughs> but I did appreciate the inclusion of both Raiders of the Lost Ark and uh, Jurassic Park because I think that those films, I feel like we've kind of come to a stage where we've distanced ourselves from both of those movies coming out in time that we can feel more affirmatively in saying like, yes, those are the classics of that time period that will forever go down in movie history, similar to the older ones that we're more comfortable with naming as classics because they're so far away in time. So some themes or metaphors, and that definitely draws off of the ending sequence as well as just the magic of movies. And honestly, I'm a little worn out about movies, about movies. I'm worn out from those. And that this is coming from an insane movie lover. I mean, hello, I have a movie podcast. When people ask me, what do you like to do? What are you passionate about? My go-to answer is movies. But movies about movies, it's just becoming a little cyclical and a little too... Um, I don't know how to put it. Self-approving, maybe, is the word I'm looking for. Um, and also, this winter box office season alone, we've got three movies about movies. There's this one, Babylon. Then there's The Fablemans, which is Spielberg's movie that's kind of autobiographical about him discovering his love and passion for creating movies and the power of movies. And then there's also The Empire of Light. I haven't seen that one, but just from the preview, you can definitely tell it's heavily like it's a movie that praises the magic of movie making sort of film. And it's like, we get it. Movies are great and it's a lovely art form and people who make movies love movies. <laughs> um, but I really did actually appreciate the scene where Jack is arguing with his highbrow artsy wife at the time. Um where he's saying, like, what I do means something, and movies may not be considered this highbrow form of art, like opera or theater, or some forms of theater, but it's the accessibility of the art form that makes it meaningful. Uh, and there is something to say about that in particular, about movies, the accessibility of them, where it's just something that so many more people will watch dozens of movies in a year than go to an art exhibit or go to the opera. They're affordable, they're more widespread, and they're just more like socially acceptable to have all different types of personalities go to the movies. Um, Babylon, it also this movie also shows how multifaceted movies are. It's they're a combination, it's this art form that is the product of a combination of so many people and talents and technology in front of and behind the camera. And they're all working together to bring this story to life for audiences sitting in a movie theater like Danny is at the end of the movie. And it's just this blend of creative talents, like the people that are behind the writing, the music, the acting, the costuming, 
hair and makeup, editing, set design, special effects, that overall creative vision. And then this movie, I think, does better than most other movies about movies to show the practical and pragmatic aspects of filmmaking. As we see, especially through Manny's experience in Hollywood, there's this large technical logistical side to movie making as well. And the filmmakers who gravitate more toward this side are not necessarily less passionate or starry-eyed than their more traditionally creative counterparts. As we see in the similarities between Nellie and Manny wanting to be part of something bigger, to be stars. You can see this in their very first interaction when they're at that beginning of the movie party and they've gone off by themselves to do some drugs and they're just talking about their passions. And even though she leans way more toward the creative talent side of things, she wants to be this actress, to be this big star, to uh, just show off her, her creative talents. Whereas Manny is definitely representative more of the practical and pragmatic aspect of movie making. But they both share this, this passion to just create something. And I honestly, I can't think of a more collaborative artwork than movies, which I think this is another point in addition to movies being accessible, that movies are also one of the most collaborative pieces of artwork, I think is what Babylon is trying to get at. Because really, can you think of anything, any sort of piece of art or literature, anything like that, that it takes so many hands and so many people and so many different creative talents to ultimately produce. I mean, I know that the average novel isn't just a one-man show or a one-woman show where it's just the author who sits down and writes and then whatever they write goes to print. I know there's a lot of backhand publishing and editing and, and that sort of thing, but it can't, <laughs> it can't be uh, as intense as watching the credits for 20 minutes as hundreds and hundreds of names go by. Um, another theme or metaphor that I kind of got from this movie is the machine of Hollywood and kind of the contradictory um, feelings that people in the field of movie making in Hollywood themselves feel towards this machine. Um, but in the end, it's going, whatever it is, whether it's a good or bad thing, which the movie kind of makes arguments for both. In the end, the movie argues that the machine of Hollywood is going to continue on no matter what. It's kind of become this immortal thing. And I, I think that Chazelle touched on that in his long quote about the end, where it's this eternal images flickering on a wall from cave painting days to the movie theater to the future, whatever that holds for movie making or some other visual audio combination of storytelling. But um, on the one hand, the movie depicts the machine of Hollywood as kind of this brutal, merciless thing that they that people within the system have sort of accepted. They love it and hate it at the same time. I feel like the movie kind of paints this scene where Hollywood is this garden of dreams, but it's also this hellish nightmare. It immortalizes people, but it also kills people at the same time. You definitely see that specifically with Brad Pitt's character, with Jack Conrad, where it immortalizes him, but at the same time, it also just like 
deeply, deeply hurts him to the point where he commits suicide. But to the point where he's talking with the um, columnist, he is immortalized forever in those movies. So I feel like the movie kind of paints this tension between dreamy nostalgia and just brutal nihilism when it comes to its interpretation of Hollywood. Some questions that I still have about this movie. First off, what was with that whole scary, disgusting underground party with Tobey Maguire, that whole scene? That was horrible. I hated every second of watching that. Like there were a lot of just throughout this whole movie scenes that were not super pleasant or just like gross or grisly or nihilistic or dark. But this this scene, this disgusting underground party really just tops them all. And I kind of feel like, what was the point? I, I'm having trouble gleaning what the point was from that as opposed to the other unsavory things in the movie. And then another question I think a lot of us have coming from this movie is, why did Nellie resist, then give in, then change her mind? regarding Manny's proposal to marry and escape to Mexico. It seems like this happy, perfect ending once he apparently finally convinces her to go along with it. But then he goes to his apartment to get some things and she just walks out of the car and just waltzes down the street into the shadows and disappears. And I guess the movie is just kind of left it open to audiences to interpret why, like what her mindset was if she really was on board when Manny proposed or if uh, and then she really did change her mind or if it was all just an act and she never really was considering going through with it to me my interpretation is that maybe she just thinks that he is too good for her and another thing that I think is that she is just addicted to this machine of Hollywood to this machine of filmmaking and being a star and even though she knows that her time is over it's kind of like this addiction to drugs that she has as well it's this addiction where she knows that you know she's already hit her peak she's already peaked she's plateaued and she's gone downhill but she can't bring herself to run away from it to mexico all right like I said, feeling a little under the weather, so this isn't going to be as long as a typical episode. But as always, I would like to end with sharing some of my favorite letterbox comments. Guys, the letterbox community is just awesome. So let me pull that up here. All right. Um, <laughs> so Katie's review is simply, is this a love letter to cinema or a suicide note? <laughs> um, Tyler says in the name of the father boogie nights the son the wolf of wall street and the holy spirit Babylon and then 24 frames of Nick said yeah it's insane all of it works or some of it works or none of it works I don't really know but I had fun I can definitely relate to that <laughs> even after um it's been several weeks now since I've watched it and I felt like I was going to let things settle and kind of digest and come back. 
after the several weeks post-watching it of knowing more how I feel about it. And I still have no idea how I feel about it. Okay. Um, David says, on the one hand, Hollywood is a fetid pit of exploitation. On the other hand, it gave us Avatar. <laughs> and then, let's see. This person's name on Letterboxd is number one gizmo fan. They said, the shortest three hours of my entire life, sobbing uncontrollably, knowing movies don't get better than this. Hold the ones you love and watch movies always and forever. And then, let's see, Robert Daniels, who is an official, like, professional movie critic, he says, Babylon is already a misunderstood gem, in my opinion, weirdly called a mess, even though its plotting and character arcs are tightly interwoven and classically structured. You could almost accuse it of being a tad too simple rather than chaotic. It's a fascinating critique of the ways the white capitalist greed of Hollywood forced and still forces assimilation onto the dreams of the marginalized and then forces them to turn on each other. It spotlights who cannot live without the business as opposed to who must leave if they hope to keep their creative integrity. All right, so those are my top <laughs> uh, reviews that I picked out from Letterboxd, some of them more serious, some of them funny. And that is all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I would love if you could subscribe, rate, and review Ending Explained on whatever platform you're listening on. I love being able to create this content, and this is a quick and easy way to show a little love in return. Till next episode, fellow movie lovers.